Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. All right, we are continuing this morning in our series, Other Hard Questions that we've been in ever since Easter Sunday. We've had a great time with this series, answering both you know, common and somewhat difficult questions about the Christian faith. And throughout this series, you know, we've been soliciting questions from you, from the congregation, and we've been answering about one of them each week. Well, today, we wanted to mix it up. We wanted to have kind of a panel discussion and try to get to several of these questions, five, six, seven of these questions all in one Sunday. And so we'll kind of give each one of them a brief answer. Some of the questions are more lighthearted. Some of them are more heavy. And so we kind of bounce around a little bit. But we just wanted to get together. And I also just wanted to sit on the stools so that everyone would see our new happy socks that we got today. Those are, those are pretty nice, I think. So no one in my house needs the matching ones. Anymore. No? No. Yeah. No. We don't, we don't need. Sorry. I think all their feet are bigger than mine. It's a little bit. That's, <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah. They smell bigger than mine. Right? <laughs> I'll tell you that. I have to tell my father-in-law that I just used this joke. <laughs> all right. So we are going to get through a bunch of these hard questions. So we're going to start with one I think is really fun. Uh, back on week two of the series, Trevor talked about the balance of science and faith and science in the Bible. And that's a big topic. But out of that came a very specific follow-up question that we got from a bunch of people, what about the dinosaurs? <laughs> Very simply, so we wanted to turn to our resident, Jeff Goldblum, to talk to us about the dinosaurs. So Robert, that's the original Jurassic Park. They remember, <laughs> they remember. So Robert, what about the dinosaurs? Ever since I was a kid, I was hoping that the Jurassic Park would become a reality. Um, I have always loved dinosaurs, and uh, as a kid, we did little fossil hunts and things like that. I was fascinated with these uh, massive creatures. I also just love the fact that uh, you know that they're just a part of our history. Uh, you know that we could we could understand these creatures, but it it did. Uh, caused some problems, even in my own faith journey, as I tried to figure out how these relate, related to the scriptures. Uh, and I've sort of uh, evolved even in my own views on that over the years. But here's kind of the gist of it. it. You know, first you start off by asking, does the Bible even mention dinosaurs? And I think the answer probably is yes. If we're being uh, really honest about what the text says, there's a Hebrew word, tannin. Uh, it probably means some sort of sea monster, uh, even possibly a dragon kind of a creature. Uh, in the book of Job, the behemoth is mentioned, and we also have the Leviathan. Uh, this is a sea creature of some sort, a sea monster of some sort. And uh, so it seems like the, the Bible does mention these creatures. So what does that mean then? How is it that uh, the Bible, science, and dinosaurs can kind of all fit together? 
And uh, the answer, of course, is we, we, we don't know. <laughs> and so uh, we don't really know. But I, I have sort of been able to see that how you answer it depends on your view of the age of the earth. And what I mean by that is any follower of Christ can have a reasonable explanation for how the dinosaurs fit in, but it will fit in as a subset of your broader view. So for instance, if you are a young earth kind of a person, that means that you think that the earth was, is about you know, somewhere around 10,000 years old uh, or younger. This is a very conservative position, even some would say fundamentalist position. Uh, and uh, so you would say there's no problem at all. The Bible says that uh, the earth is very young, so dinosaurs and people lived together on the planet. Simple. The Bible said it. Uh, and you would say, well, what about dating methods? And they would say, well, the dating methods are all inaccurate. They can't be trusted. They can't be tested um, in a lab, so they're not really science in that way. And they would point to other things. They would say, well, look at all the legends and the myths that are out there uh, in every culture around the globe. And so clearly, early humans saw something that, that caused all of these myths and legends about these, these monsters and these creatures uh, to come into being. Uh, and there's other evidence as well. They would say, we have fossils of human and dinosaur footprints right in the same strata, crossing each other. And uh, you know we have a massive extinction event even listed in the Bible, Noah's flood. And so you know most of the dinosaurs would have died off shortly after Noah's flood because of the cataclysmic changes that took place in the environment. And we have other evidence. We have cave drawings, and we have these little ancient uh, clay figurines and, and, and even carvings in ancient temples that look like things from the dinosaur era. And so clearly, people saw these creatures. Now, skeptics would say that all of these are anti-intellectual rants and based on bad science and mostly hoaxes that naive Christians believe, and they would reject all of those out of hand. On the other side of it, you have old earth Christians, and they would say, well, yeah, the earth is millions of years old, and uh, so dinosaurs did in fact exist way, way, way back then. And when the stories are in the Bible about dinosaurs, or what seem to be dinosaurs when they're mentioned in the Bible, well, they're actually just the Bible's efforts at using the myths and the legends of the day to make some sort of <coughs> theological point. They're not actually talking about these creatures, but they're talking about what those creatures had come to represent in the whole of culture of the day. So it would be like some sort of an extended parable idea, using images from the day in order to make a point or something like that, more like an epic story. Um, others would say, no, 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 no. You've understood all those words wrong. There are no dinosaurs in the Bible. It's a misunderstanding of the text. These creatures were not you know, these massive creatures, they're talking about big elephants and, and hippos and, and whales and giant squids and other things like that. That's, that's what's really going on here. So don't worry at all. The Bible never interacts with dinosaurs in this way. There's also a hybrid position, uh, an old and new earth position, which is sort of interesting, uh, which I do like in, in some ways, uh, although it depends on the day as to which of these <laughs> I, I actually believe, um, to be quite honest with you. But uh, so in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're, then that's Genesis 1.1. All right, great. Then there's Genesis 1.2. 1, 2. 
chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And so what they propose is a gap between 1-1 and 1-2. The gap theory has actually been called. And that is that there was an ancient creation that took place here on earth. But something happened to that ancient creation, and dinosaurs were a part of that ancient creation, and who knows what else was part of it. Who even knows what kind of civilizations could have existed back then. But the point of it is that whole creation came to an end. At the, some point between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, that whole creation, maybe it was a meteor, maybe some other cataclysmic event, maybe it was when Satan fell from heaven to earth and destroyed the whole of the planet. And that means that, in fact, Genesis 1-2 is the beginning of our creation story. And so you have the old creation and you have the young creation narrative found in Genesis. So it really does depend uh, how do the dinosaurs fit in. It really does depend on what decisions you make about the age of the earth and how you're going to fit them into your, uh, your cosmology. So that would mean like... Fred Flintstone would be a young Earth because he had dinosaurs right. on the job. All right, I got That's it. Right. I got yeah. it. He's, he's definitely uh, in that camp. Today I'm allowed to use dad jokes all day. All day. <laughs> there is nothing that you can do. All right, so another question that we want to talk about. What about 11th hour Christians? Meaning someone who gets saved at the very end of their life. Is that fair? Are those people really in heaven? Are they experiencing the same type of eternity as someone who was a Christian for their entire life? So, Sarah, talk to us a little bit about this. People who get saved right at the end of life. Yeah. So, those people are saved. Yeah. Um, I think a passage that really illustrates this well is what Jesus said to the criminal on the cross, right? Uh, in Luke 23, it says, um, Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So who he was talking to, this person was, was a criminal, right, um, who by society's standards was, was worthy of death. He was hanging on a, on a cross next to Jesus. He didn't live any sort of upstanding life his entire life, and now he's found himself there. But he stood up for Jesus, right? He put his trust in Jesus, and because of that, Jesus said that this man would be with him in, in paradise, so, so, yes, people who put their trust in Jesus, even at the very ends of their lives, are indeed saved. Um, but, like you said, people ask, how, how is that fair, right? Uh, I've lived my entire life as a Christian. I've followed God all of my life. I did everything I was supposed to do, and yet this person did whatever they wanted, and now they get to be saved at the very end. How is that fair? But that's really more of a, a heart problem on, on the person who's asking the question side, right? Um, because when you ask that question, you're, you're forgetting that you too were once dead in your sins and that each one of us needs the saving grace of Jesus every single day. In Ephesians 2, it says that for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And I think that last, last bit is really important with what we're talking about here, where it says, so that no one can boast. So it's not our being a good Christian or the longevity that we've known Christ in our lives that saves us, but, but grace through faith, no matter when in your life that happens. And on top of that, what an amazing blessing it is to have known Jesus your entire life, right? You can only imagine the amount 
of regret and, and guilt along with joy that someone would experience when, when they find Jesus either at the end of their lives or later in life because they've missed out on this whole portion of life of living with hope, right? They've missed out on having the Holy Spirit work through them and in them in their lives and they've lived an entire lifetime estranged from their father, but now, now they're being brought back home. And if we backtrack a little bit to the criminal on the cross, it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Like many people who find Jesus at the end of their lives, this criminal knew the weight of their sin and knew that he should be punished justly. And they knew that Jesus was their only hope, right? So we can celebrate along with all of heaven when someone comes to Christ and is saved, no matter when in their life that is. So true. Just as a testimony to that, just two weeks ago in my own small group, someone who got saved in their late 30s said, how they wish they had been saved sooner so they could start living this life sooner. You know, so that's very well said, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, another question that we had come in was, why are there so many Christian denominations? I love this question. Usually part of this will be, what kind of denomination is beacon, right? I, I would love the answer to that question. <laughs> I can tell you. I'll give you the answer. Because, of be course, awesome. we tell everyone Beacon is non-denominational, and they're like, thank you, that's not at all helpful. It doesn't, <laughs> hasn't answered my question in any way. I love this question. Um, I have cousins and grandparents who live in Missouri, so I've traveled there throughout my life for, you know, for vacations and for, for um, weddings and things. So I've been to my cousins. Three of them got married at the Main Street Baptist Church in a town called California, Missouri. Yes, Missouri does this thing where they name their towns after other places. So I've been to California, Missouri. I've been to Mexico, Missouri. Uh, most of Kansas City is in Missouri. And my grandma lived in a town called Versailles, Missouri, spelled exactly like Versailles in France. So when I was in elementary school, my teacher started teaching about the Treaty of Versailles. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. It's Versailles because I've been there. <laughs> So it's very confusing. But anyway, in California, Missouri, population 4,000, okay? A really rocking town. Main Street Baptist Church is less than two blocks away from First Baptist Church. Yes, right. There are two Baptist churches in a town of 4,000 people. So I asked them, what is the story behind these two churches? And, of course, they have no idea because it's an old, old story that's been forgotten. And this has kind of been the history of our faith, unfortunately. So here's an overview of the Christian denominations. <laughs> All right? Unfortunately, this is not a joke. This is also a summary. There's a lot more. Okay? But here's what you should know. Christianity is principally in three streams. The first schism, the first split was in 1054. That's when the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Orthodox Church, now called Roman Catholic Church, that's when they split in 1054. Both of those churches claim to this day to be the one true original church. They split around the year 1000. Then in 1517, a group of 
rebels, a group of protesters, were trying to first reform the Catholic Church, and instead these reformers ended up breaking away and becoming the protesters or the Protestants. And this is in 1517. And Beacon is a part of the Protestant movement. Unfortunately, after that, once the protesters kind of got rolling, you can see it kept splitting. There's a lot of different denominations up until this day. Uh, Jesus knew this was going to be a problem. And so in John 17, it's recorded the prayers that he prayed on the day that he was later betrayed. And so in John 17, starting in verse 20, he said this, My prayer is not for them alone. This is us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, which we haven't done a great job at. So why do these denominations keep splitting? Well, you can look at it positively and you can look at it negatively. There are times when some of these new denominations, some of these splits may have been a positive experience. It might have been a group of like-minded people who really preferred worship in a similar way or preferred certain traditions or practices or whatever. You know, there have been such new denominations over issues of worship, over music, over how and when a person should be baptized, over how to understand the gifts of the Spirit, over how often to receive the elements of communion, over what exactly the interpretation of the Bible would be. Is it a good book? Is it God's Word? You know, and some of them have been very negative. Some of them have been simply groups of people who wanted more control, groups of people who wanted to call the shots. And so much of the denominational, oh, much of this denominational issue has come out of sin and has come out of a, a fractious spirit in God's people. And it's something that I hope we can do better in. Interestingly enough, in the last hundred years, denominations are losing distinctions and churches are uniting across uh, geography and shared mission more so than they ever have uh, in denominations before. So it's been very interesting. So what is Beacon's position? Well, in uh, 1600s, a man named Rupert Smeldon has said this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. He said this during what's called the Thirty-Year War from 1618 to 1648. It's when German Protestants and Roman Catholics were at war with each other in Europe. And eight million Christians died. And so Meldonis was trying to explain what the Christian ethos should be, how we should treat each other in these differences. So in the essentials, understanding the person of Christ, understanding salvation by grace through faith. There we should have unity. In non-essentials, have some liberty. And then in all things, charity. So that's what we strive to be as a non-denominational church. We're intentionally not aligning or identifying with any movement smaller than that third strain of Christianity that started in 1517 because we want to have unity, liberty, and charity in these things. Hey, Chris, one of the things that um, I had said, I've, been, I've told people over the past is I say, you know, before there were Protestants um, and before there were Protestants and Catholics and before there were Catholics and, and, the, and the, you know, the Orthodox Church, there were Christians and they believed a certain thing and they lived out of the teachings of the Bible. So uh, we go back to them. <laughs> so whoever that was back then, 
before there was all this other mess. Um, that's Absolutely. What, that's what we head back to. We can't say that Beacon is the one true church. I think that's taken. <laughs> but that's definitely what we're trying to do. We're trying to, you know, not ecumenical. That means something different. But it means we're trying to intentionally, you know, unify in all the areas that we can. Now, here's an interesting point of theology to get into. Trevor, I want you to talk about this a little bit. It's about Satan. Is Satan a real being? Or is this the personification of evil? You know, is Satan that you just hear about on Saturday Night Live? Or is Satan Kaiser Sose? <laughs> and is Satan the one who's causing me to sin? Yeah, so uh, this was a question that came in. And, and really the, the tension was, is Satan real? Or is it just my sinful nature that causes me to sin? And the answer is, yes. Because <laughs> uh, the Bible is... is very clear that there is this being, Satan, uh, and there aren't, he's not alone. There are these dark spiritual forces that are personified beings called demons, and Satan is one of these demons. He is the chief demon. Uh, now, the, the demons, they came to be because God made them, but he didn't make them demons. God made them good, and they chose to rebel against God, much like human beings. Like, we were created in God's image, and we were created good originally, but we rebelled against God. Well, angels were created good, and there was a group of them that rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. Satan was the, the chief of these, and Satan was a, like a, a supreme angel even. So he was like high up on the good side, wanted to be like God, got cast out, took a, a bunch of cronies with him. And now this group of demonic spiritual beings are like bent on destruction and they are dead set against God. In fact, the name Satan means adversary. Uh, and he's sometimes called the devil, which means the accuser. And he's given all of these different uh, titles throughout scripture, but he is an adversary and he's just against us and he is against God. Satan is real. Demons are real. However, all right, Satan, Satan can oppress us, he can entice us into sin, you know, he can tempt us, and he can deceive us, all right? He can kind of uh, get us to question things that we've been told, but Satan can't make us sin. He doesn't have that power. Satan isn't all-powerful. He also isn't uh, omnipresent, so the chances that you and I have ever even encountered Satan isn't very high. Maybe demonic warfare, yes, but Satan can't, it's not like he can be in all places at once and he's, you know, simultaneously attacking all Christians. Uh, so understand that he is, he's limited in his power, but he is still powerful. And, and here's the, the thing about sin. Even if you wipe out all of like Satan and demons and get rid of that whole mess, we're still probably going to sin because we have a sinful nature. And so chances are, there's a lot of times that, you know, demonic warfare isn't even messing with us because we're doing just fine in the sin department on our own. And, you know, on top of that, we also have the world and culture and stuff that, that's working against us. And, and what we really need to take away from this is, no, we, we can't blame Satan for our sin, right? He's not responsible. We have to take responsibility for it. But we should be prepared for him. We should understand that sin is this powerful force working against us. In fact, in Genesis 4, God tells Cain, before he kills his brother, he warns Cain, he says, be careful, because sin is crouching at the door, just seeking to devour you, seeking to overtake you. And so we should, we should look at this and understand that we can't sit back and uh, address sin passively. 
This is a battle that we're in, a battle for our souls, and we can't go into this lightly. As uh, an old Puritan once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, right? And so we should understand that this is a force working against us that is, it, it's a powerful force, and so we should be meeting it with equal uh, power through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Trevor. Okay, another question. Sarah, I want to pose this question to you. Should we pray to the saints and even Mary? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> All right, next question. Thank you, Sarah. That's well said. Try to, try to shorten it up next yeah. time if you could. All right. Why not? What about yeah. St. Christopher? He's pretty sharp. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing? Um, yeah, no, still no. I think one of the things to be reminded of when we're presented with these questions or we're wondering why we shouldn't be praying to saints is to remember that all of the saints that we hear about, and even Mary, were all people, right? Um, people just like you and me, and they sinned and needed the salvation through the cross, um, they weren't any sort of supreme beings that, you know, were held highly above everybody else. They were just people who desperately loved the Lord and they lived lives that were a result of knowing Jesus. And that's what made them saints. And because of that, that means that we are also saints. Um, so again, the answer to that question would, would be no. We don't need to pray to anyone other than God. And honestly, like, why would we want to when we have direct access to the Father? It's hard to wrap our head around because are we worthy of direct access to the Father? No, but we have the privilege and the honor to be able to pray to God the Father because of what Jesus did and the way that he reconciled our relationship back to, back to God. When the disciples were, were with Jesus, they asked him how they should pray, and he told them that they should start their prayers with, Father, hallowed be your name. <coughs> So Jesus didn't gather the disciples together, sit them down, and they, he wasn't like, okay, guys, while you're all still alive, you're all going to pray to Moses. And then John, when Peter dies, you're going to pray to him, and then so on and so forth as the rest of you die. And don't worry, the messages will get to my dad. Like, no, he didn't say that. He said that we can pray directly to the Father. And the second part of the question is, is Mary sinless was mary sinless and she has her own song and everything she does she does <laughs> but but the answer would still would still be no oh. right because did she find favor in the sight of the lord yes yes she did was she given an amazing privilege of being able to bear the son of god yes that's amazing was jesus loved by her and did jesus love her yes completely and did she need the cross for her salvation also yes um, one day when Mary and some of Jesus' brothers were waiting for him, Jesus said this. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mothers. So whoever does the will of the father. So bring it, bringing it together, it means that we don't have to be afraid to pray directly to the father because he hears, he hears our prayers. So then a question that we had come in that was a little bit more serious was this. Someone asked, if someone dies of a drug overdose, is that considered suicide? And in some ways, it's an unknowable question because only the person who's passed would know if they understood how far they were pushing and if they knew that they were close to death or not. 
But I think there's probably a question under the question because I, I think someone is probably asking this really to ask if a person who commits suicide would go to heaven or not. And the, that question is rooted in a concept called mortal sin. And mortal sin is the idea that there are some sins that because they're very grave and because they're, they're intentional and because of their severity, that they can actually kill the grace that God has put into a person's heart. And so I want you to know that the concept of mortal sin is not from the Bible. It only exists in Catholic theology and tradition. And so if you've heard, you know, hey, if someone commits suicide, uh, they, they automatically cannot go to heaven. That's rooted in the Catholic concept of mortal sin. And that's not something that we believe here at Beacon is biblical. There's a couple of problems with mortal sin. First of all, the only remedy for mortal sin in the Catholic tradition is that it must be confessed. But that would mean that you have to be always confessing your sins. You have to make sure to confess your final sin, if it was a serious one, in order to go to heaven. And we don't believe that you have to always be confessing your sins like that. It is a good practice for discipleship to be confessing sin, but it's not required for forgiveness that you keep confessing each individual sin, especially because you, you should realize if a person through depression dies through suicide, they're not the only people who might... I, I do believe suicide is a sin, by the way. They're not the only ones who would die in the commission of their final sin. You know, if, if you're robbing a bank and you're fleeing the police and you get in a car accident and you died, you died in the commission of your last sin. Even something as simple, you know, you're not supposed to break the laws. If you jaywalk in the city and get hit by a truck... That could be your last day, and you never had a chance to confess that sin. So if we believe that you always had to confess that last sin, it's a very, very dangerous road to be on because there's a really good chance that you won't confess your last sin. You also simply might forget. <laughs> More seriously, we have a problem with the idea of mortal sin because mortal sin clearly says that these sins that are super bad and super intentional can kill the grace that God has put into your heart. And we do not believe that is true. We don't believe that... There is sin that can overcome the grace that God has put into a person's heart. Romans 10 makes it very clear how someone goes to heaven. Romans 10, 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are, those are the criteria. Declare with your mouth and believe in your heart. So then, what would we believe about the grace of God if these mortal sins, these bad ones, can overcome God's grace? So then is God's grace only powerful enough for the small sins? That doesn't seem like the kind of grace that was shown to us on the cross. So if a person dies in suicide, whether or not they're going to heaven isn't really related. That would be whatever was happening in their Christian walk. Now, I know this is very serious, and I hate to just, like, jump in and jump out of the topic, but if this is where you're at today, if you're dealing with depression, if you're dealing with suicidal thoughts, uh, seek help now. We would love to pray with you. We would love to connect you with people who are experts in dealing with this kind of care. Know that God loves you. Know that there's no thought that you've had that has made him separate or far from you. But I don't believe that a person who is lost to us through suicide, uh, it, it does not mean that they cannot go to heaven. Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to give you the last one, Trevor. In 90 seconds, can you please explain to us the difference between predestination and free will? Oh. All right. 
Are we predestined or do we choose God? We'll finish with this one. It's an easy one. We'll just yeah, talk yeah. about it. 90 seconds here. 90 we're going to solve go. it right here it. and now. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you've been in Christian circles for any length of time, you've probably found yourself amidst this debate of, you know, is God fully sovereign? Does he direct all these things or do we have free will? And, uh, and the, the reason for this tension is that in scripture, it seems to suggest two ideas that when you look at them seem that they, they can't coexist. Like they, they seem like they, they don't work together. For instance, you know, you have Jesus pointing out, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Makes a point to let his disciples know this. Ephesians 1, uh, multiple places. He's like, God chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us. We were also chosen by his pleasure and will. We were predestined by his plan, his purpose and will. All of this happening like before creation began, like before you were here to do anything about it. Uh, you know, Romans 8 kind of, he uses this word again, predestined. We were predestined to be justified and glorified. In Romans 9, it talks about how it's not just our, our it doesn't depend on our effort. Actually, it doesn't even depend on our desire, but on his mercy and in choosing us for salvation. And then Revelation, we see that the book of life that has our names written in it for salvation, that that book was written and those names were either written there or not written there before the creation of the world. And so we're like, okay, clearly in his sovereignty, God chooses believers before they choose him. But <laughs> scripture also teaches that we need to make choices. You know, in the Old Testament, it says, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Jesus constantly gives the invitation, come follow me. Uh, and, and so we're, we're kind of like, well, it, which is it? Are you choosing or are we choosing? And I'm sorry, the answer Trip, is kind you're of- You're out of time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I'm sorry. You were yeah. cut off. Solve it. All right. Solve it. Uh, <laughs> uh, what we see in Scripture is that God has predestined us to choose him freely. Uh, and it's not either or, it's a both and. And it really is a mystery. And Scripture has a handful of these mysteries, like Jesus being fully God and fully human. Like each of those independently makes sense. Put them together. It's like more than our minds can handle. God being three and one. Even in science, we have some mysteries like light behaving like a, a wave or is it a, a particle? It kind of does both depending on how you're looking at it. And uh, it, it is a mystery. And we need to understand that it's a mystery because uh, with mysteries, these are things that scripture doesn't even try to give us an explanation, not because God can't give us an explanation, but our minds couldn't understand these things. We are finite human beings. We can't understand all eternal matters. And so God trying to explain it to us would be about as useful as us trying to explain quantum mechanics to a toddler. Uh, I can't even understand quantum mechanics. uh, But with that in mind, all right, we we have to understand with mysteries, if our minds can't comprehend the nature of the mystery, we shouldn't draw our own conclusions from the mystery, okay? Because this is where we get into trouble with this debate is we say, well, if God is fully sovereign and he's going to do what he wants to do, then I can just sit back and, you know, kind of let God, you know, do his thing and I'll just watch the show. Uh, but scripture doesn't actually give us that option. And understanding if, that, if that's how this mystery should be understand, that's how scripture would talk about it. But that's not one of the ramifications that we're told about. And so, uh, we can't, we, if we can't comprehend the nature of this mystery, we shouldn't draw our own conclusions. We have to see how scripture talks about this mystery and what conclusions scripture comes to about this mystery. And there's a number of them. Uh, do we have time? Can I give you like just one or two of these? Okay. Uh, so one of, one of the, the really cool ramifications of this mystery that we see in scripture is that before time began, God was thinking about you 
and he loved you, and he chose you, and he had plans for you. And long before you, you could do anything to earn his favor, he was thinking about and dreaming dreams for you. And, you know, today on Father's Day, you think about, like, you know, as dads, you fall in love with your child, like, the moment they're conceived. Like, you're just like, oh my goodness, you've already, long before they do anything to earn that love, you love them. And we see that this is how God loves us. He, he loved us before the creation of the world. And one other one that I, I, I think is super important is many of us, uh, we're nervous to share our faith. We go out in the world and we get like uncomfortable and people might reject us. But one of the things that we see in scripture about this teaching that God is fully sovereign and he's choosing people is that there are people out in the world, there are people probably in your circle of uh, the world that God is calling to himself. And you might be nervous to go and bring the gospel to them, but they're waiting to hear it, whether they realize it or not. Like God is calling them, and he's just, they're waiting for that moment where you're going to go and you're going to share the gospel in their lives. And we can actually go out and preach the gospel boldly, knowing that, yes, there are going to be people who reject it, but there are people that God is already doing a work in their hearts, just waiting for us to go. And so we aren't going into hostile territory, trying to convince rebels to defect. We're going to friendly soldiers who have been trapped behind enemy lines, who have just waiting for that opportunity to hear the gospel. And so it gives us this courage to go and share the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Trevor. All right, so we are going to call it there. We have other questions prepared, questions about you know, what happens in the moment after you die. Uh, what are the biblical mandates for divorce and remarriage? Uh, the Bible talks a lot about demon possession. Could that possibly just be mental illness and some other things? So what we'll probably do is this time, sometime this week, maybe we'll just jump on a Facebook Live and do some of the rest of those. And so we will continue in our series next week. So next week we're going to talk about why is the God of the Old Testament have so much war and violence? And in the New Testament, God is love. <laughs> so we'll work on that next week, okay? All right, so why don't you stand? I want to pray for us before we go. God, thank you for this time that you've given us together. We just enjoy sitting and talking about the things of you. Thank you that you've revealed so much to us about you through your word, through your creation, and through your spirit. And we look forward just with eager expectation to growing closer to you, that as we learn more about you, our hearts will be drawn to you. I pray once more that you'll bless all the fathers in our church and in our lives today, that you would have your hand upon them, and I thank them for their outpouring of love they've shown all of us in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.